0: We will be hearing the word from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 10, and verses, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Matthew 6, 5, And when you pray, you must, be not, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. So this morning we have a special guest preacher, uh, a a friend of mine, a, a mentor of mine, someone who is been very involved in me getting uh, to the place that I am in my spiritual life and my, uh, my pastoring. So more than 10 years ago, uh, Kent Matthews uh, befriended me as I was coming up in uh, ordination, and he helped me get through that process, which was the most strange and un, uh, unlinear process I've ever been through. And he helped me uh, 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 grow up, and uh, his, he's given me opportunities to teach in one of his uh, his schools. He is the dean. Is it dean? President. Okay, dean, president, and uh, professor of a local seminary, uh, also founder, founder. So he's, uh, he uh, has invited me to teach there several times. So he has been a, a person who has been with me every step of the way in growing up as a pastor. Uh, he's been a friend through some difficult times. And it's a real treat for me to have him come and share the word with us. So if Dr. Kent Matthews, if you'd come up here, I know he only wants to be called Kent, but please come and, and give us the word today.
1: Thanks, Bill. Good to see you all. Thank you for allowing me to be here and share the word. Um, Nathan is uh, a dear friend of mine and um, I hate preaching with a passion because I've been doing it for years and years and it's like, you know, you write a sermon, you deliver it and then it's like, it's irrelevant because then the next week you got to write another one and then you got to write another one. And um, I don't know why other people find it so enjoyable. I don't. But because he's been so helpful to me when he was going on vacation, he said, would you please preach for me? And I go... God, no, I don't want to preach. So I'm setting you up so that your expectations are realistic today, okay? Um, I have a friend named Shannon, and several years ago, Shannon and I went to visit a church in midtown Kansas City. It used to be called Roanoke Presbyterian Church, an older congregation in a medium-sized sanctuary that was only half full. Shannon is single and had never been married, so during the greeting one another time, which is fairly common in a lot of churches, you stand up, you say hello to one another, it went on for 10 minutes in this church, I kid you not. Every single person went all around the sanctuary saying hello to somebody, and I probably interacted significantly with 10 people that I'd never met before in my life. So as I'm coming back, when worship is about to start again, I realize my friend Shannon had literally never gotten up never moved around the sanctuary, he'd spent the entire time talking to an older gentleman who was sitting right next to him. So as worship starts, I lean over and I point this out to him, and he says, oh, he knows my sisters-in-laws. And then I'm paying attention, but then I'm not paying attention. Because I'm processing for the umpteenth time, how do you make a plural of a hyphenated noun? (laughs) Is that sisters-in-law... Is that sisters-in-laws... Or is that sister-in-laws? And as it's swirling in my head, I realize I'm never going to resolve this, so I'm trying to pay attention again, and he loses me once more because I'm thinking, wait a minute, Shannon is single, he's never been married. So he doesn't have a wife who has brothers who are married for him to have plural sisters-in-law. And for him to have plural sister-in-laws, he'd have to have at least two brothers. And I know he has no brothers, he only has one sister. So again, I'm going, this makes no sense to me. So I lean over and I don't, maybe there was a prayer or something It was completely inappropriate. I said, Shannon, you don't have any sisters-in-laws. And he looks at me like I'm a moron and he goes, I said he knows my sisters-in-laws. Oh! You see, I had gotten the words right, but I had totally missed the point. It's kind of like um, what Nathan did this morning on this s'more church thing. It's like until he said... Some more church. I was sitting going, Some more church, big deal, who cares? I got the words right, but I missed the point until he explained it to me. Okay, this, I think, is the primary problem most of us have in prayer. We may get the words right, our theology may be correct, we may use all the currently accepted cliches and idioms. we may carefully word our requests, we may say in the end it's not what I want God but what you want but in the end ultimately what most of us are all too often doing is jumping through hoops so that we feel like we got a better chance of God giving us what we think we want and need and we miss the whole point of prayer some of you may be familiar with the acronym ACTS A-C-T-S which is Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving and Supplication so If I tell God how wonderful he is, and then I tell God how rotten I am, and then I tell him how grateful I am for all the stuff he's done for me, despite how rotten I am, then I've got a better chance of getting him to give me what I want. If this is the process we go through, and the thought process we have while we're doing it, then we have missed the point of prayer. And we're spinning our wheels and spending time doing something that is never going to accomplish the purpose for which we are there. And I think there's two things of which we're primarily guilty here. One of them is that we tend all too often to see God in prayer more as a power than as a person. A power that we want to channel for our own purposes. A power that we want to maneuver to get what we want rather than a person with whom we have the amazing privilege of having a relationship. And number two is we tend to think of prayer as a technique. It's a skill that we need to master. And something that we get better at, then therefore we're going to have better results at the end of our prayer time what an unbelievably sad understanding we all too often have about prayer that it is to allow us to get stuff out of God and we get better at it so that we can get better at getting stuff out of God and I think at the bottom of this is a single root problem and that is we tend to view God as an end to our means Uh, When I was in seminary, I was in Los Angeles, and I was a teaching assistant for a very well-known British theologian. His name was Colin Brown. And early in our relationship, Brown, who was born in England and had only been in the United States for a few years, was telling me how much he had admired the U.S. national park system. The whole idea that we've got these amazing, diverse, natural beauty areas, and that we were protecting those things, and that someday he'd like to go to one. I go, you've never been to one? He said, no, never. So I said, I'll take you to one. Let's go to Yosemite. Well, you know, straight north out of LA, you go a couple of hours, and there in the east, uh, central part of California in the Sierra Nevada Mountains is Yosemite. Now, if you've never been there, it's this glacier-cut valley with fascinating rock faces and and cliffs and waterfalls, it's just spectacular, especially in the winter after a snowfall. I mean, it is so gorgeous, it can literally almost take your breath away when you first experience it. In fact, if you come through a tunnel, and there it is, it's eye-popping. So on January 8th of the year, Dr. Brown, and he invited two other British professors of note at Fuller Seminary to go with us, so the four of us went up to Yosemite, we pulled in after dark, and that night it snowed six inches. So at 5.30, when these guys get up way too early um, and put on their normal uniform, which is brown tweed sport coats, brown sweater vests, white shirts, and a black tie to go out in the snow in Yosemite, the four of us walk up this rise and we're standing underneath Yosemite Falls. It's not the biggest waterfall in the United States, but it's the longest waterfall in North America. So you look up at it between these giant rock crags against a blue sky with white clouds and you see this water coming down and drifting and cascading and turning into mist in the winter, I mean, it literally took my breath away and I've seen it multiple times. So one of them is standing there going, oh my, oh, oh my, It was all he could say. The other one just simply said, dear Lord God Almighty, and then shut up. So for about three minutes, we're standing there saying nothing to each other, just soaking this in. And up beside us walks an American tourist. He kind of looks at the group, and then looks at the waterfall, and looks at the group. And I know he's thinking, who are these strangely dressed guys? And looks at the waterfall, and then he says, you know, that is such a waste of water. If you put a dam up there, well, you could probably irrigate part of Central California, which is in desperate need of water. And then he walks off. And it's like, the bubble has burst. So as we're walking back down the path, Dr. Brown says to me, can you imagine the sheer pragmatism of that statement? The idea that Yosemite cannot exist for its own beauty and wonder, but that it must serve some practical, pragmatic purpose in order to have value. And this, I think, is at the core of what Jesus wants us to understand about prayer, is that God does not exist to be a means to our end. No matter how much we say we don't believe that, we live as if we believe that. God does not exist to be a means to our own end. He is the ultimate end, in and of himself, amen, period. And if we get this, it will transform not only our prayer life, it will transform our relationship with him. If we don't get this, it creates two problems. One of them is we're going to be very, very frustrated in prayer because if we see prayer as a way of manipulating and maneuvering God and God by the way, refuses to be manipulated and maneuvered, then we're going to be very disappointed in our prayer life. And then number two, because we're not getting what we want out of it, then why go to prayer? And so we start praying less. Unfortunately, in American evangelical circles, there's been this tendency over, I think, the last 60 years, since about 1968, to view prayer in this way as a skill or a technique that we all need to get better at. That if you understand the steps or the principles, then you can pray more effectively and get more things out of God. We talk about the power of prayer. We talk about prayer as the force that moves the hand of God. We talk about wrestling and agonizing in prayer. And those people who wrestle and agonize better than the rest of us become prayer warriors, which I'm not trying to put down. But isn't that the language of conflict and competition and not the language of relationship and fellowship. And so do we view our relationship with God primarily as wrestling with God and agonizing with God? Or should we view it more as fellowship and loving, affectionate relationship? There are books and seminars today and Christian bookstores on five steps to more victorious praying, how to have a more effective prayer life, and I wonder myself, effective at what? Effective at getting what we want out of God or effective at improving our relationship with God? Several years ago, I received an advertisement in the mail from a Tulsa-based ministry for a seminar they were conducting online that was entitled, How to Overcome God's Reluctance Through More Biblical Prayer. I mean, what an embarrassment, but the bottom line is, I signed up just so that I could see how many people tuned into this thing, 1,100 people were online watching this thing. Revivals, conversions, healings are all rightly attributed to the power of prayer, but then so are closed business deals, the outcome of athletic events, even finding parking spaces in crowded parking lots. But in the end, normally when we talk about the power of prayer, most people mean the power of the person who knows how to pray well far more than they mean the loving God who is responding. Those of you who are parents, can you imagine your children holding a seminar down your basement on how to overcome your parents' reluctance through more effective whining? Uh, Five steps to more effectively nagging your parents or haranguing your parents wearing down their willpower to get what you want out of them? What would that say about your relationship with them? I actually watched one of my children doing this once when my oldest son was seven. Um, he was conducting a seminar like this for my five-year-old daughter. They were whispering in the back of the house, and so I, I, I'm wondering what they're doing, and I kind of, you know, I'm eavesdropping. And with the point at which I enter the conversation, Michael says he won't do it if you just ask him. What you need to do, Becca is you need to say, I love you, give him a hug. Um, he, He likes, if you look him in the eye, and say, please, and then ask what you want. And I thought to myself, no wonder he's so good at getting stuff out of me. I mean, it's a great system. But here's the problem. If this defined his relationship with me, which, truth of the matter is, it all too often defines our relationship with God. You know, we tell God, I love you in prayer, and we say please, and we carefully word what we want to say, and we look him in the eye, and we assertively ask him for things, and maybe even in the end we say, and not my will, but thy will be done. I mean, it would break my heart if that continued to be the nature of my relationship with my children. I don't think it takes a theological genius to figure out it breaks God's heart. Because that's all too often the way we see the nature of our relationship with him. All right, if that's the problem, what's the solution? And by the way, Nathan, I have no idea when I'm supposed to be done. I didn't look when I got up here. Okay. I think it's in the first line of the Lord's Prayer, where he says, your father already knows what you need, so when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You need a little background. I know you know this, but I'm gonna tell you this again. Seventeen times in the Lord's in the Sermon on the Mount, which is just Matthew five, six and seven, just three chapters, seventeen times Jesus refers to God as either your father or our father. Seventy more times throughout the Gospels, he refers to God as our Father or your Father. It is literally like a flashing neon sign going constantly through the Gospels saying, there are few things more important in all of the Gospels than this concept. In fact, there's few things repeated in the Gospels more than this concept, that God, the outside of space and time creator of all that is, loves you in a fatherly way and wants you to perceive yourself as his loved and beloved child and him as your beloved heavenly father. Now, we've heard this so much over the years that to be honest, most of us are jaded by this. It's like, well, sure. But back when Jesus first said this, Every other religion that was known at the time had multiple gods, not one god. The gods were capricious and malicious. They were just as likely to rape a woman or destroy your crops as do anything positive or helpful to you. And so God makes himself known to the nation of Israel as the one, only one, true God. And he presents himself as a caring, loving father. They saw him as the father of the nation. But over time, this whole view got corrupted, and they got to the point where they wouldn't even use God's name. They took the vowels, I mean, they took the consonants and stuck new vowels in there. So his name went from from Yahweh to Jehovah because they were so afraid of God. We don't want to anger him. He might punish us. The truth of the matter is God says, I'm going to have to punish you because you're not doing anything I'm asking you to do. But they got such a perverted idea of him that when Jesus came on the scene and said, no, you need to understand that God is a loving Heavenly Father who loves you like the best human father does, it was like a bomb that went off in his culture. And the religious elite, it was like, you are blaspheming, you cannot present God this way, and who better to tell us what God is really like than God himself. And number two, it was like a bomb that went off in the hearts of followers, The woman caught in adultery, the woman from the street who washed his feet with her tears and dried them with his hair. People who understood the forgiveness and love and true, genuine, fatherly affection of God, it radically transformed them. And church historians will tell you that one of the reasons the church exploded in the early days is because people had this new, radical, transforming understanding of a God that loved them personally, not just one who was waiting to punish them and catch them doing something wrong. When we understand God's fundamental concern for our welfare and our needs, it changes the way we pray. When we understand God's fundamental desire for fellowship with us, it changes the way we pray. Now, in the second passage that we had read today from Matthew chapter 7, again, part of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of it we're told, if you earthly parents, even though you're sinful know how to love and care for your children, how much more will your heavenly father love you and care for you? This is an idiom in the original language, is how much more, which means if simple human beings know how to give what their children need and work very hard to provide for them and take care of them, how much more, infinitely more, does your perfect heavenly father have the same attitude and will do the same thing? But the problem is, we sort of have this view of God But we don't really have this view of God. When I was um, five years old, I got a plastic fencing set for my birthday, um, plastic masks and plastic foils. And that afternoon, my brother and I are out in the yard um, fencing, and he's too close to me. And when he lunges, his foil goes like this, and it snaps in half. And so I say a curse word that I'd learned from my father. And my mother, who is standing there, says, can't you know God heard you say that? And every bad thing you do gets written on your heart. And when you die and go before God, he takes a look at all the bad things you did and compares it to the good things that you do. And if you don't have enough to outweigh it, then you get punished. My mother denied ever saying this. My brother said, sorry, Mom, I remember you saying that. But I remember that night bouncing on the end of my bed. It's like 2 in the morning, it's black in my room, and I can't sleep because I'm processing this whole idea of, I've already done so many bad things that I know I'm not supposed to do. And my heart's only this big. How can God write everything I'm gonna do in the rest of my life on my heart? I know my heart's gonna get a little bigger, but hey. And she didn't say that he writes down the good things I do. So he's got a written record of the bad things I do, but he's got to remember the good things that I do. What if he forgets some? And what if I need 1,500 good deeds to outbalance it, and he forgets one, and I've only got 1,499? Literally, I'm thinking this. Now, without going into too much detail, I can tell you this impacted my view of God for more than a decade. And even when I came to faith in Christ at the age of 11, I still had this sense that God is somebody who cares about me in a generic sense. But really, I just kind of want to tippy-toe around him and not get in trouble and not disappoint him because I don't want to have to pay a price for disappointing God. What a sad reflection on our understanding of who God is and the nature of relationship with him that we have, all of us, have a somewhat perverted view of who he is and what his relationship with us is like. And it manifests itself, I think, as much as anywhere else in our prayer life when we are hoop jumpers to get what we want, and that's the primary approach that all too often we have with him. But what about the question of persistence? So we, you may have a chance to take a look at this in discussion later, but in Luke chapter 18, there's this parable of the unjust judge. The parable indicates that there's a guy who's an immoral irresponsible unrighteous judge who won't rule in favor of a woman but she keeps worrying him and nagging him and persisting and asking and in the end he then gives her justice and so Jesus point in the parable is that you don't need to worry because God will give you justice now here's the funny thing we do with Bible interpretation first of all we learn it the way somebody has taught us we don't read it for ourselves And secondly, when we do, we take virtually everything out of context. We don't read it in context. So what Jesus is trying to say in the midst of people being persecuted for their faith is continue to believe and trust in God because he will bring justice for you. It doesn't say persist and God will give you a bigger paycheck. Persist and God will give you a nicer car. Persist and God will cure infertility for you. Persist and you'll pass that test that you didn't study for. Uh, persist and he'll fix your finances for which you've been completely irresponsible with your credit cards for it doesn't say any of that all it says is persist and even though a human judge will give you justice if you persist in your relationship with God God will give you justice in your life and that's literally all you can do with that passage But that's not what we do. What we do is because we want to believe that God will give us what we want. So we take this parable to mean, well, all I have to do is ask God for anything, and then he'll give it to me. Okay, so what about the passage that we read in Matthew chapter 7 that says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Right, so what is the Sermon on the Mount? Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. It begins with the Beatitudes, and basically, if you go all the way through it, it's saying, What God desires is Christ like character in His children, period. He wants us to be humble. He wants us to be merciful. He wants us to be pure in heart. He wants us to be true to our word. He wants us to raise the bar on what our understanding is of our Christian character and not just live within the letter of the law, but understand, like, for example, that if you hate, you're actually guilty of murder in your heart. Then He says, stop being spiritual hypocrites which is where the Lord's Prayer comes in. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't fast like the hypocrites. Don't give charity like the hypocrites. When you pray, pray like this. Then he says, don't be anxious for all these material things. Your father, who knows what you need, is going to take care of you. Heck, he takes care of the flowers and the birds. He'll take care of you. Don't be judgmental. You get the point. So people like again, take this verse, ask, seek, and knock, out of context and say, well God in all three of these chapters is talking about our Christ-like character. In all three of these chapters he's talking about being the kind of person who God wants us to be. But now I'm going to take these verses and go, I can ask for anything I want and God will give it to me. I can seek anything I want and God will give it to me. It's sort of like if I'm standing at the celestial slot machine, if I pour the, pull the handle often enough, eventually I will hit the jackpot. It is such irresponsible reading and understanding of Scripture, it's both funny and painful. So, by the way, if you learn nothing from the sermon today, learn that A, God does want to take care of you, but he's not going to give you anything you want, no matter how much you nag him and persist and ask... And just because you phrase your prayers carefully and use all the right terms, he can't be either bullied or maneuvered into giving you something that he knows is not best for you. And number two, read your Bible in context. Don't just assume because you've heard a sermon from somewhere else or because this is what everybody else believes that it's correct. The persistent prayer is about justice and asking, seeking, and knocking is about God giving us those things that seem almost impossible for us. It seems almost impossible to me that I would ever not worry about material things. It seems impossible to me that I wouldn't sometimes judge other people. It seems impossible to me that I could be all of the characteristics of the Beatitudes. And the answer is you can't count on your own. You only can because you continue to pursue God. And in that relationship... In an attitude of prayer, in a relationship with him, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, makes those things possible. Do you get this? This is a radical different understanding of prayer. By the way, it is a biblical understanding of prayer, and it's that which Jesus modeled himself. So let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me. So there he is with his three best friends, sound asleep, agonizing in prayer in the middle of the night. And the presumption is he's there for a long time. It's just one line to say, probably for hours. He's agonizing over God. I'm scared. God, I don't want to have to endure this. I know what lies ahead of me. I'm going to be betrayed and brutalized and beaten and tortured and nailed to a tree and die an excruciating death. God, please, I don't want to have to do this. If it's possible... Take this away from me. Then in verse 42, we're told Jesus prayed a second time, meaning that after quite some time, his prayer changed and now he's praying this way. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink from it, may your will be done. And in these two prayers is the perfect example of the difference between how we begin our prayers but don't frequently transition to the way Jesus ended his prayer. Of course we begin our prayer by communicating our desires, our wants, our hurts, our frustrations, our perceived needs, our anxieties. God, please listen to me, pour out my heart to you, and I'm just going to be honest and tell you the way I wish things were. But in the end, Jesus comes back and says, okay, but God, if this isn't what's right, if this isn't your plan, if this isn't what needs to happen, not my will, but your will be done. And what we tend to do is we throw in the not my will, but your will be done at the beginning to kind of snooker God into thinking, this guy's got the right attitude, so I'm going to take care of him. Rather than saying, uh, God, I'm being honest with you, but in reality, I want what's best for me, and only you know what that is. Do you know that only that if, if prayer... Um, I think I ought to say this. So you would think that any two people in the history of the church who could get what they wanted out of God would be Jesus and Paul, right? Jesus being God, you'd think he could get out of God what he wanted, and Paul being the preeminent focal point of the early church and the growth of Christianity could get what he wanted too. Um, do you think that they ever paid for, prayed for bigger paychecks? Do you think they ever prayed for um, an easier life? Do you ever think they prayed for comfort and convenience? nicer toga? Maybe an extra pair of sandals? I mean, just if you just simply think about what you know about people in Scripture and the prayers that are in Scripture, it should be an embarrassment to us, frankly, the kinds of prayers that we pray and the understanding that we go to God with prayer with if we say, well, if Jesus and Paul are the model for this, they never prayed that kind of stuff. I mean, they prayed that maybe that they would be um, bold in persecution, that they would be bold in speaking the truth, that God would use them and their gifts and talents to accomplish his purposes. But again, that's not the way we tend to pray. Now, if God were to give you what you wanted, you would actually be punished because God's not accomplishing his purpose if he gives you what you want. Because most of what we want is to escape what we don't want or to get what we don't deserve but would like to have anyway. And if God says, okay, you can have that, then what we think would be an enormous gain is actually a tremendous loss because Jesus couldn't become Christ-like by getting anything he wanted. Why do we think we can become Christ-like by getting anything that we want? There's a story told about a veteran from World War II who had lost the leg in the Normandy invasion, um, there was, he was still over in France, and there's a the Pyrenees Mountains separate northern Spain from southern France, and there was a mountain village that had a shrine in it that's reputed to have been the basis of a lot of physical healings, so people would go up there um, every year uh, and pray for healing of some kind, and supposedly some healings had occurred. So this veteran on his crutches is hobbling, you know, through the train system. He gets to the village. He crutches across the cobbled stones of the village, up the winding path to the shrine. He's in the shrine. And behind him is a couple that's watching him without one leg on his knees, praying quietly. And the man ungraciously says to his wife loud enough for the veteran to hear. So what's he praying for, that God will give him a new leg? To which the man Smiled and turned around and said, No, I'm praying for a completely different miracle. I'm praying that God will enable me to live a life of gracious courage without my leg. I took a survey of my own prayer life one year because I, I journal and so I write down all my prayer requests. I did it originally so that I could, every year, I could go back in addition to praying and, and reflecting on what I'm learning in Scripture. I could see what God has done in my life over that year. And part of the best part of it is that I see all the things that God has done, all the things he's accomplished, mostly not in a way that I could have envisioned, but in a way that was far better than I could have envisioned, but still God's answer to my prayers. But I decided once, well, I would go back over an entire year and take a look at my prayers. And most of my prayers were basically asking God to make things easier for me to solve things for me, to fix things for me, to provide things for me. And when I added them all up, it really basically came down to, I'm asking God to make my life easier. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. What a crazy prayer for a Christian to pray. I should be praying that God would bring on whatever he needs to bring on to make me the person that he designed me to be so that I can become more like Christ, because that's the whole point and purpose for which I was saved. Okay, so what do I want you to take away from this? Number one, God is not the means to our end. God is an end in and of himself. And we need to approach God with the idea that he's to be enjoyed for who he is, for the fellowship, for the relationship, not because he's a celestial slot machine that we keep pulling the handle on. Number two is that don't be fooled by many of the interpretations regarding prayer in scripture, because most of them, frankly, are taken out of context. And the place where Jesus gives the model prayer, the Lord's prayer, the whole context has to do with becoming more Christ-like. And when God talk, when Jesus talks about God answering your prayers, he's talking about making you the person that he wants you to be. Not giving you all the things that you wish you had, that you don't have, or wish were different. Okay, let me say a closing prayer. Father, I confess that I am the worst of sinners in this, and have only, by the hardest uh, labor on my part and the greatest patience on your part grown in this area, Yes, I still tell you what I'm struggling with and how I wish things were different, but I don't go with the attitude that if I work it right, i got a better chance of getting what I want. Persistence means pursuit of you, not nagging you, not hounding you, but pursuing you and trusting that because you are the perfect father that you will provide for me and care for me, but not necessarily a bigger paycheck, but hopefully a more Christ-like character. Father, help me to value prayer for what it is and what its purpose is. Help me to value my time for you, for how it draws me closer to you, and how it changes me and not changes you. ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. John Calvin once said, He who kneels in prayer, regardless of what he asks for, if he arises from it a better person, he may be assured his prayer has been answered. Let me say that again. He who kneels in prayer, no matter what he asks for, if he arises from that prayer a better person, he may be assured his prayer was answered. So what's the point of prayer? That we might be closer to God and become more like Christ. We tend to think, whether we say it this way or not, that the point of prayer is to change God, It's to change God's mind. God's not giving me what I want or doing for me what I want. So therefore, I need to pray to change God. And the real miracle of prayer is the person who approaches it rightly comes out of it transformed themselves. Our values are different. Our perspective is different. Our relationship with God is different. Our relationship with other people is different. Our willingness to live a life of courage is different. If that's not a miracle,
0: I don't know what is. Amen.